I grew up in Regina, and uh, as, a pre, as a young teenager, my pastor, Dick Sipley, taught me something that I've for, never forgotten. He taught us over and over again that God loves all the peoples of this world, whether they're from Irian Jaya or Niger or Russia or Paraguay or Syria or Canada, or wherever they're from, and that Jesus died for everyone. And so it's really an incredibly cool opportunity and a wonderful thing that the nations of the world are coming to our country, coming to Lethbridge, and coming to our church, and we certainly welcome them. One of the byproducts of that is that it points in our service You're going to hear people having the service translated into their original language because English wasn't what they were first taught when they were growing up. And so you may hear some of that going on from time to time in the church service, and we are so glad that these people are with us. Let me pray with you as we begin. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word once again. We invite you to speak to us as only you can We pray that you would just find people that are willing to hear, that our thoughts would be synced with your thoughts, that our hearts would be synced with your heart, and that we would then have them molded and shaped accordingly. And so we pray these things and ask them now in Jesus' precious name, amen. Monday this past week, I'm driving uh, up 13th to a meeting with two leaders in our church, and I'm wrestling. I'm distracted. And I'm thinking to myself, should I tell them about this or not? Because something had just happened that was pretty overwhelming for our family, and it was very difficult. And I wasn't sure what to do about it, because to be honest with you, it's a bit embarrassing. It's embarrassing to admit. And I was very hesitant to be vulnerable with them. And it wasn't because I knew these two leaders in our church couldn't be trusted with the secret because I knew they could. And it wasn't because I thought they wouldn't care because I knew they would. And it wasn't because I thought they couldn't help because I knew they would. It was because it was hard to admit I need help. And help is the fifth word in this little series of words that we're doing this summer, five words that we've been looking at together. In the first week, we looked at the word no, and we said the word no is such an important word. It's such a liberating word because it sets appropriate boundaries in life. We don't just say no for the sake of saying no. We say no, we say no based in who we are in Christ, what our identity is, and what he's called us to do, what our mission is. And when we understand those things, it's just, it's really more, it's more simplified to have clarity about when to say no. And in order to do that, we say no, that then we could move on to the second word, which is the word yes. And when you know how to say no, then you know how to say a healthy yes. 
And we like to say yes, typically, but we have to understand those things to say no and to say yes. The third week together, we looked at the word sorry, which I would argue is the most difficult of the five words. It's really hard for us to admit when we're wrong. And to say we're wrong, and then to say, with God's help, would you help me where necessary and where it's appropriate to repent, and to help him, allow him to help us to turn and go into a different direction. So sorry is a tough word because it strikes at the heart of our pride. Last week we looked at what I would suggest is the most countercultural of the five words. That there's a very prevalent way of thinking in our society. And the Word of God often has very countercultural things to say. And so we looked at the word enough. And we talked about the fact that so many people in our culture, they make this amount of money or they have this amount of resources, but they think to themselves, if I only had this much, then I would have enough. And so they spend the bulk of their life living in what I would call the discontentment zone. And so we talked last week about moving from the discontentment zone to the generosity zone, which is such a wonderful way to live life. And today we're going to look at the word help. So I'm driving up 13th, and I decided to swallow my pride, and I told them. And they listened, and they prayed for me, and they helped. Now, it also helped that I knew I was going to be preaching on help this week, and I thought, rather than, you know, avoiding this, I better know. That's not why I did it, but, but I'm so glad that I did. And really, today's word is a type of prayer. It's really a confession of need. And sometimes we pray this prayer for ourselves, and sometimes we pray it for others. And all of the service today, if you've noticed, has been themed around this. As we've sung about these things, as we've read scripture that revolves around these things. And there's a bunch of reasons that we don't ask for help. Sometimes um, we don't want to ask for help because we don't want to appear weak. And we don't want to feel like we're in debt to somebody. Sometimes we don't want to ask for help because uh, we don't even recognize that we need help. We're sort of ignorant or oblivious to the fact. Or we don't ask because we're afraid to ask because we're afraid that person will step in and take control and we don't want to lose control. Now, at the risk of stereotyping an entire gender, there is a gender in our culture that has a reputation for being reticent to ask for help. And I'll just let you guess which one of the two genders that is. Uh, I read a study that was illustrative of this, and I, I can hardly believe that this study is true, but even if it's close to being true, if it's a quarter true or a half true, it's quite an interesting study because what they suggest is that even in the age of GPS, where you can look at your phone and see how to get places, that the average man drives 440 kilometers a year totally lost because we don't want to ask for directions. 
So I thought to myself, we just have to kind of level the playing field here. So I thought to myself, you know what I think I should do? I, I decided not to, but I thought I should get them to turn to each other during the message and look at each other with, with deep sincerity and say to the person sitting beside them, I need help. But then I thought to myself, ah, there's a bunch of people that won't want to do that. So instead I thought, you know, I should, and maybe I should do this, get you to turn to one another and look at one another with all sincerity, look the other person in the eye and say, you need help. <laughs> we all need help sometimes. You know, we go over the budget, and so we're in that debt that we're not sure how to address. Or there's unresolved conflict that makes it really difficult to be in relationship. Or there's some problem behavior in our life that leads to a series of bad choices that are really difficult that might even end up in an addiction. Or there's an inappropriate flirtation that hinders the marriage relationship that might even one day lead to an affair. Or there's procrastination that ends up in unemployment. And reality is, is that the fact that we need help is central to our identity and our spiritual condition. Central to our spiritual condition. This is why it says in the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 6, it says, So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. We say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, and I will not be afraid. We are made by God to live in continual dependence on God in the context of surrender and a type of interactive friendship. Now, on the surface, that looks like weakness. But I would actually suggest that quite to the contrary, it's actually life and strength. That in fact, you have to be much braver to live life that way than to live life the other way. And there's this wonderful little story, and we sang about it this morning, a wonderful little story in Scripture that illustrates the idea of building our life around so let me just set the setting just a little bit for you. It's set in the northern part of Israel on the west side of the Galilee. It's a big body of water, one of the only big bodies of water they have in the whole country. And it's just north of the town that Jesus grew up in. He grew up and worked in the town of Nazareth. And north of that town and just a little west, is a town called Cana. And I've been to that town. I've walked the streets of that town. And Jesus and his leadership team, his disciples, and his family, his mom included, are inv invited on the third day of the week to go to a wedding at a place called Cana, west of the Galilee. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of John. It's the fourth story about the life of Jesus, the fourth biography, historical biography about the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it begins in chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11 of John chapter 2. 
And as I read this to you, I invite you to just interact with an, an act of worship by responding as I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then Jesus told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. There's been very few weddings that I have been the one performing the wedding ceremony, or that I have simply been there as a guest attending the wedding. Very few weddings where something didn't go wrong. You know, somebody forgets a line, the flowers are the wrong color, somebody spills something on the groom's shirt, something like that. I think of a couple of weddings I did. One was this very young couple, I was doing their wedding, and they were extremely nervous, like really nervous. And we were doing the, the, the candle ceremony, which is this uh, symbolic gesture where you have two smaller candles and one large one, and you have the two smaller ones lit. And as I'm talking away about the symbolism, the, they're supposed to take the two candles and light the one, symbolic of them becoming two, two becoming one flesh. And as always, you have a lighter there in case something goes wrong. And so I'm saying this stuff. They're very nervous. They take the two candles, and they don't light the big one. They just blow them out. So I just kind of, I lean forward, it's no big deal, right? Things happen. And I just kind of whisper to them, you, you, need to, you need to light the big candle. Well, they were so panicked, they both lunged for the lighter, and they just clunked heads very hard. And they both stumbled around the stage, groaning and moaning, holding their head. When I was doing Debbie's sister's wedding, Barbie is her name, Barbie uh, has this big white dress on, you know, like typical or whatever, big white dress. She hardly ever wears high heels. And so she's in high heels. She's uncomfortable in these high heels or whatever, not used to them. And for whatever reason, I guess I wasn't too bright. I had them standing on a stair, and she's really nervous, and she's twitching and moving around like crazy. And all of a sudden, both of her heels go over the stair. 
And in very, I wish I'd had a video camera because very loud, she, she, goes, she goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. And she almost, thankfully, she didn't fall off the stage. But it was quite, quite funny. Something went wrong at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. They ran out of wine. Now, in the ancient world, you have to understand something. And I would suggest, even to this day, in parts of the Middle East where I've been, this is a huge deal. Because the whole community would basically be invited to the celebration. It was a long celebration. And in that culture at that time, and really in many places still now, as I said, hospitality is considered a sacred obligation. To run out of wine meant shame and disgrace for the family. It was a disaster. And the entire celebration would be ruined. On a slightly different note, What are you running out of today? What are you running out of today? Now, I don't know about you, but there's a couple of tanks in my life that are almost dry. So let me just ask you, who are you talking to about this? And and will you ask God for help? Well, the text says that Mary goes and sits down with Jesus uh, to talk to him about this. And we're assuming at this point that her husband, Joseph, is dead. We don't know for sure, but we're assuming this because normally in that culture, she would have gone to her husband first. And so she goes to her eldest son. She goes to Jesus, and she simply says five words. They have no more wine. They have no more wine. Now, Max Lucado, in commenting about this, said this is really, in his opinion, the first prayer to Jesus that's ever prayed. They have no more wine. Now, let let me just push pause for a second again and do another little aside. And let me just say to those of us that are here who think you're not a very good prayer, and you you think to yourself, I'm extremely nervous if I ever have to pray in front of other people in any way. Because you're thinking to yourself, I don't do it very well. Let me just say this. This is the first prayer prayed by Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it's not too fancy. You know, typically we take the fancy prayers from the Bible, quote-unquote fancy prayers, and we put them on a plaque. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, and we hang it on the wall. Or we, we put uh, uh, our Father who art in heaven, and we put it above our desk maybe in the office. Nobody is making plaques that say they have no more wine, except maybe in France. I don't know. Now, the thing about this prayer is, and about any prayer, is it's less important what we say. What's more important is to whom we say it. Let me just say that again. It's less important what we say, but it's more important to whom we say it. So Jesus wasn't planning on doing any miracles. He was just a guest there that day. 
He wasn't performing the ceremony or anything like that. But he answers the prayer of Jesus because Mary asked for help. He asked, she, it was her request, and her prayer had an impact on what went on. But he, it's a very curious reply. He says, woman, what has this got to do with me? And when you first read that there in verse 4 and 5, you're kind of going, it seems a little cold. You know, he doesn't even say, mom, what are you hassling me about this for? He just says sort of like woman. And Dale Bruner, a New Testament scholar of some note, suggests that more than likely this was just some playful uh, sparring or banter going on between mom and son. But one of the things I noticed, and, and one of the songs we sang this morning talked about this, one of the things I notice in this passage is that Jesus does not immediately give his mom the answer she's looking for. Did you notice that? Even though it's his mom, he doesn't immediately give her the answer she's looking for. And sometimes the help prayer is like that. We say, you know, we have this situation or whatever, and we pray, God, help me, and words to that effect. And we don't necessarily get the immediate or even the type of answer we expect. I'm going to suggest we always get an answer. But the answer might be yes. It might be yes with an unexpected twist. Well, I didn't think he was going to do it that way, but I'm glad he did it. It might be no. And so often in life, not always, but so often in life, we look back, you know, years or days or months or whatever, later, and we go back and we go, I am so glad God said no to that thing that I thought I needed, because if he'd said yes, this would have just been a disaster. It's a good thing he knows better than I do, and I'm so glad he said no. And oftentimes, the answer is wait. So much of the Christian life has a wait component to it. Verse 5 provides a world of teaching for us when we think about prayer and how to relate to Jesus. Let me read it to you again. So he says to her, dear woman, what time, what's this got to do with me? My time's not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. It's interesting to me. He, she doesn't even respond to him. She doesn't answer his question. Maybe it was meant in a rhetorical manner. I don't think so. But it, 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 she doesn't even address his question. She just goes and finds the servants and says to them, do whatever he tells you. There's some profound teaching there because Mary is teaching us. She's an amazing woman. And she is teaching us if we want God involved in our ordinary day-to-day -day life, in every aspect of life, in the things that we think really important, in the things that are fairly mundane in our estimation, in the things that are really difficult, the hard things of life, if we want him involved in every part of our life, we want to live in his presence. And whatever he tells us to do, do it. This is what she's saying to the servants. This is what she's teaching us. Whatever he says to do, 
do it. So in other words, if he says, love your enemy, love your enemy. If he says, which he says in Matthew chapter 5, it says, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, which he says in Luke chapter 11. If he says to repent, repent. If he says to forgive, forgive, give, he's give. If he says to care for the poor, care for the poor. If he says, as it says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God. Top priority in life, bar none. Seek first the kingdom of God. God is to be first in our life, nothing and no one more important than him. As it says in Matthew 5, if he says be salt and light, do that. And may all our life give glory to God. At UDAC, if you're wondering a little bit about what our church is about, at UDAC we want to be a prayer first. Whatever he tells us to do, do it church. Let me see that. That's important. I'm going to say that again. At UDAC, we want to be a church that prays first, and then whatever he tells us to do, do it. So let me give you a practical illustration of this. When we elect elders, which is kind of the the biblical term we give to the people that are are giving leadership over the church, spiritual and, and other kinds of leadership, When we elect elders, we're not electing them in the typical democratic sense that we think of here primarily in North America. Really all we're doing is acknowledging what God has already decided. It says in Acts chapter 20 that he puts them in place. And so there's different methods in the scripture of how elders get put into place. We happen to use elections. It's just one of the methodologies. All of them are meant to be an acknowledgement of what God has really decided. And so what we tell them as they come into the role of elders is that our role as elders, yeah, you listen to people. You want to listen to people. But it's really not about representing a group of people like we typically think of an elected official doing. It's, it, it's really not. The role of an elder is to hear from God. And whatever he tells us to do, do it. Whatever he tells us to do, do it. And it's so cool what Mary is teaching us here. And I'm guessing she doesn't really understand what's going on. She doesn't get the whole, you know, we're looking back in hindsight and we can see all this, but she doesn't know what all is going to come. She has some ideas, but she doesn't really know what's all going to come. And so I don't think she's understanding totally what's going on here. And so rather than pressing in with him and pushing him or anything like that, she just makes this very profound statement, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Then I want you to notice, here's another important thing that we're taught about prayer in this passage. Watch how the servants respond. Very profound, because there's a great lesson in this too. Jesus, it says in verse chapter uh, 6, says to the, to the, to the guys, uh, go and fill those ceremonial jars with water. And like I said, when I was in Cana, they had, and there's a picture of what one of those jars looks like right there, or at least a, a facsimile of what they would have looked like at that time. And uh, they're pretty big, and they're really heavy. And the thing that I notice about how the servants respond here, which is pretty cool, is it says they filled them to the brim. 
They filled them to the brim. In other words, I'm going to suggest they obeyed with their whole hearts. This is a big, big deal. Like for us to get water, we just turn on a tap. wasn't obviously like that then. There's six of these things, 20 to 30 gallons. So let's just round it off and say there was 150 gallons of water. Have you tried carrying five or 10 gallons of water? It's heavy. And it takes a long time. In a place where there is very, very little water, it's a dry and thirsty land they call Israel. They call it a place where they made the desert bloom. This is one of their expressions. And they probably had to go and extract water, which I remember Debbie, when we were there, cranking a a well um, in, in this one town, bringing the water up from way down below. And it was a lot of work. It might have taken them hours to fill 150 gallons of water. And here's what I'm thinking. It would have been tempting to sort of just fill those pots three-quarters full and say, ah, that's good enough. These guys didn't do that. These guys practiced what I, practiced what I would call it, fill it to the brim obedience. Fill it to the brim obedience. No half-hearted effort here. No, let's just do what we can to get by effort here. It's fill it to the brim obedience. And if we want God to be our helper, it doesn't start with me having a list of demands. It doesn't start with me saying, you know, God, um, I've decided to make your response to what I want a litmus test as to whether I think you exist or not. Or sometimes we'll have the attitude, I'm going to decide how much I trust you based on how you respond to what I think I want or I think I need. It doesn't work like that. And this is why there's so many people in our world that are so confused about this stuff. And they think they're God and he's not. And so it begins with Fill it, it, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And then it, it, it also has, carrying with that is, fill it to the brim type of obedience. So if he says encourage someone, don't do a half-hearted effort of that. Encourage them fully. If he says go to work, and the, the scripture says when we work, we don't really work for our boss per se. We work as unto the Lord. Fill that hour as we work with our whole heart. When he says to serve, serve with delight or rather than a grudging heart. If he says to give, give in a way that requires sacrifice. If he says tell the truth, tell the whole truth with courage when you're tempted to lie. And then we ask God, God help me, help me, help me. This is how the kingdom of God works. And again, this is a pretty countercultural way of looking at things. I don't think quite as much as the enough word last week, but it's a pretty countercultural way of looking at things. We don't hear this kind of stuff very often in our world, do we? You imagine, I'm thinking about this, you imagine, you know, the, the, 
the master of ceremonies or the head banquet guy, he didn't know what was going on, but all the servants, it says in the passage, they knew what was going on. And I was just imagining, you know, they go home from work at the end of the day, and they're sitting, actually, they didn't sit at their tables, they kind of reclined at their tables, it was different back then, and they're having supper, and their spouse said to them, so, anything interesting happening to you at work today? I did. It was incredibly cool. He said, go and fill this stuff with water. And we did it. We filled it right to the brim. He turned all that water into wine. And I saw God do a miraculous thing. I'm going to serve him with all my heart. So can I, can I just be honest with you for a second too? <laughs> this miracle always used to really bug me. I didn't see it as one of the quote-unquote respectable miracles. Heal that person. Feed those people. Raise that person from the dead. And it, it's, it's around the issue of alcohol. And I understand the cultural nuances of this stuff. I get it, okay? I understand the culture a little bit. I know a little bit about it at least over there. I understand what the scripture says about alcohol, and the only thing it says about it is don't get drunk, which leads to debauchery. But on a personal note, it's hard for me because I've seen a lot of heartache from alcohol abuse in my extended family. And so I find, or at least I used to find this passage a little bit hard. And I found it hard to really understand and really appreciate. And I'm not totally sure I completely understand it yet. I'm still working on it. But can I suggest to you that I think this story illustrates some things to us about Jesus and the kingdom of God and why we are made to be very dependent on God. So here's what I would understand. Mary was simply looking to avert disaster public shame, ruined event, all that kind of stuff. Jesus goes way beyond averting disaster. This is really the heart of God. He doesn't just make wine. He makes huge amounts of wine, and he makes the finest of wines. And it says in verse 11, when he did this, it revealed his glory. In other words, what he did, the fact that he made vast amounts and he made the finest of wines, tells us something about the very nature of God. That God and Jesus came, the scripture says in the book of John, to give us life and to give it to the full. That Jesus it illustrates he not only shares our griefs to heal them, but he shares our joys to enhance them. He shares our life to make us more alive, more alive than we would ever be. That salvation is not, as important as this stuff is, salvation is not just overcoming sin and death and the negating of death. Salvation, listen to me carefully here, is actually the elevating of life. It's not just dealing with sin, which it does. It's not just dealing with the negation of sin and of death and eternal life. It's the day-to-day -day elevation 
of life. And so Jesus does things more extravagantly than we can imagine. And we often forget this. And we have a very small God in our mind. And of course, he won't be contained by our feeble minds. Soren Kierkegaard said this. Listen to this. This is an interesting comment about the church. Christ turned water into wine, but the church has succeeded in doing something even more difficult. It has turned wine into water. And we forget that our God came to elevate life. Without God, I would suggest to you life is much less alive. Without God, grace turns into rules, goodness into pride, faith turns into excluding people. We become very grim, self-righteous people. And so the help prayer erodes self-sufficiency. And this idea that anyone is self-sufficiency, it's just this grand illusion that people labor under. We are born as babies needing help. As we approach the end of life, we frequently need a lot of help. And all the way in between, we say, God, help. And then we watch as his glory is revealed. 